Hey friends, it's Eric Hulkern and welcome to another episode of the Everything is Marketing podcast. Yes, it is back and for October, we wanted to do something special. So all month long, we are digging into the business of cannabis. And so for this first episode, I brought along with me Gus Burns, who is the cannabis industry reporter for MLive.com. And for this episode, we've got an amazing guest for you. Andrew Brisbow, who's the executive director for the Marijuana Regulatory Agency here in Michigan, will join us and talk about where the industry is, where he wants the industry to go, and what is next. So enjoy this episode of the Everything is Marketing podcast. Marketers ruin everything. Welcome to the Everything is Marketing podcast. What I don't want to do is to pretend this is show number one. What would the hero of your life's movie do right now? Do that. Do those things. And our guest today, Andrew Brisbo. Andrew, how are you, my friend? Well, we're keeping busy for sure marijuana going on in the States. So, you know, we keep our minds occupied to say the least. Well, and, and that's one of the things I, I wanted to start with. And I've heard you say this in a couple other interviews is leading up to 420, there was obviously a ton of interest in the product. And then afterwards, it was just sort of, as you said, this sort of snowball effect. Can you talk about the effect of the quarantine on cannabis in Michigan? Well, seemingly the effect was an almost sort of unchecked growth in sales in the market. Uh, as you said, leading up to 420, we saw a pretty significant increase and, and weren't that surprised by that when we realized what the date was. But then we saw, you know, record sales every successive week for four or five weeks in a row. Uh, it appears to have kind of plateaued now, but we're over $100 million in sales if you look at the medical and adult use market combined. Uh, since I think if you go back to, to, to April. Uh, so the industry really started to get its feet under it. Uh, started to see a, a tremendous increase in the production side as well as you know, we kind of ramp up to meet that, that, that demand that exists in the consumer market in the state. So you know, quite impressive numbers. Uh, a lot of you know, businesses really uh, get to the point of, of being uh, a fully full-scale operation now, I think, as this market starts to mature. It's, it's not unanticipated the market would grow to this point. I, I think it's a little bit surprising that it grew this quickly to get to that point. So um, during the pandemic, a lot of the businesses have done different things to try to keep going as people are forced to stay home. What are, like, what's happened with the retail end of everything? And I guess within the industry to, in response to the pandemic. So, so we were trying as an agency to get out guidance when it came to how to operate in COVID, you know, I think the industry looked to us as, you know, executive orders were coming out and public health guidance was coming out. So we tried to consolidate that as best we could because we are not public health experts at the MRA. You know, we specialize in regulation, but not necessarily, you know, full on public health guidance. So, so we really relied on those external resources and tried to be a conduit to get that information to licensees. And I think licensees adapted relatively quickly. Uh, by and large, operators in this industry want to, want to do things the right way. They, they see the opportunities and they want to do what's necessary to, to go about engaging in this business in a way that, that's appropriate. So they were concerned about the safety of their staff, the safety of the, the patients and the adult use consumers that they were working with. Uh, but they made shifts pretty quickly. So, for example, the, one of the big changes was allowing for curbside service. And I think even as things start to be relaxed in certain areas of the state with uh, some of the uncertainty surrounding, you know, the impact of the executive orders issued by the governor over the past several months, 
I think we see a lot of them still continuing to engage in that. Uh, they, they just recognize that it's a little bit safer. Uh, convenience is nice for the customers and we want to be supportive of that and ensure that the regulatory environment allows it. So I think that, that their ability to be, to be flexible, uh, their ability to adapt to an ever-changing environment was quite impressive. And we wanted to be supportive of their ideas as to how they could continue to grow in this industry and continue to pursue profitability even during the pandemic. And obviously, as we discussed, the consumer interest in the product didn't wane at all. If anything, it just increased. And it seems like a lot of the changes were delivery. Can you talk a little bit about how delivery has expanded throughout? We've had provisions that allowed for delivery all along, but I think we saw a lot of businesses shift there as well, where they thought uh, it might not have been as profitable and therefore not a priority for them uh, pre-COVID. We saw a tremendous shift there. So, so we devoted some resources to making sure we could get those delivery plans approved so the businesses could shift in that direction. Uh, you know, as we've seen just in, in, our, in our culture over the past several months, everything is done via delivery now, right? I, I talk to my friends. I think I'm the only one that still goes to the grocery store. I just like <laughs> wandering up and down the aisles. I find it calming. But everyone gets their groceries delivered now. They get, you get food from fast food restaurants and other types. It's not just pizza and Chinese that are getting delivered anymore. It's all sorts of food. So, you know, th- these products are being delivered as well. Uh, and we, one of the changes we made in the rules that were implemented in June was to allow for, you know, fluidity with delivery systems uh, through what we call a dynamic delivery. So uh, now those, those delivery operations through uh, provisioning centers on the medical side or adult use retailers can have a certain amount of inventory on hand as they go to do deliveries so that they can be dispatched to additional locations and they don't have to keep coming back to the store every time. So I think that's that's made it, that was a change that allowed more of our retail operations to get into the delivery space. Which is probably, I guess, probably important because I see some companies or businesses are going several counties away. Um, so, so do you expect these changes uh, to continue? I mean, the curbside, expanded delivery, and do you have any idea how much of sales come from outside of in-store sales or how much is in-store sales? I, I do. Uh, we, we do continue, we're going to continue to allow uh, curbside service. Uh, that, that's something that's not prohibited in the rules. Drive-throughs are specifically prohibited. So in the absence of executive orders that kind of suspend some of those restrictions, that's something that, that we'll have to open the rules again. But I've already talked to, to a lot of operators and we've said, uh, I think we need to be supportive of those types of options. So the next round of rulemaking, we won't look at, at prohibiting them. Uh, we'll look at how they can be done in a way that um, you know, is, is as safe as possible. So building some regulatory guardrails around that, looking at, I mean, not just curbside service, not just delivery, but other, you know, potential forms that might come through, you know, contactless service through those operations as well and trying to look at that. But you know, in, in the data that we track and we look at, um, you know, how much delivery is being used to give, just to give you a sense, in the last seven days, uh, we've had over $700,000 in retail sales was done through delivery services, but uh, you know that's that's out of you know, almost 23 million in sales. So the vast majority of it is still occurring in some some form on the premises of those establishments. You mentioned the rules; uh, those became hard and fast. This and so what what goes into changing a rule? Because there's uh, you hear I mean this is a changing industry very quickly. People are mm-hmm. probably some rules. How does that work? Well, we're at the agency always collecting policy ideas, uh, you know, looking at, you know, we implemented those rules in June. There's always something, some scenario you didn't think of. So something arises where we take notes and say, okay, the next time around, we've got to tweak this. It didn't quite work like we thought it should, or people are still confused about the interpretation. So we, we always want clear language. Uh, 
I think we like to accumulate a few of those things before we move forward with the rulemaking process because it is it can be a lengthy process. It, it involves you know dra- requests being made, um, published uh, drafts being published. We have to have a public hearing. You know we have ten rule sets we manage now, so you know, depending on the timing of those, we can do one hearing for a lot of the rule sets like we did before. But in some circumstances, we may open just a single rule set and and have that addressed through the public hearing process. And then it's all got to be approved by the uh, Joint Committee Administrative Rules through the legislature. So, you know, if you really hustle it along, you can get it done in about six months. But in a lot of cases, uh, you're going to take a little bit longer to get through that. So you want to make sure you've thoughtfully considered what needs to be done so you make as many changes as possible that are needed all at once. You can't open a, set, uh, a rule set multiple times to address changes. So if we've opened the rule sets and we've put drafts forward and going forward with the public hearing, if other issues arise, those have to be on the back burner then until that rule set is open again. You you mentioned uh, the possibility of a drive-through rule change. I mean, just not like it's concrete or anything, but uh, are you other things from the industry, like think rules they would like to see down the road? Anything? Yeah, my, my, my staff are, are collecting ideas all the time. Uh, you know, drive-through is a pretty, a pretty simple one, but we hear about that quite a bit. There's a lot of discussion in the industry now about, uh, you know, researching new product lines, uh, beverages in particular are of interest to a lot of the processors in the industry. They want to move forward in that direction. So we're looking at that. There's always emerging technologies to consider that, that we need to be aware of um, and, and to determine if, if regulation is necessary to effectuate certain things. So there are a lot of things on the docket. We have a lot of cleanup to do as well. Again, as we implement that entire rule set, all hundreds plus pages of that all at once you're going to find little things that you wish you would phrase a little bit differently. So there's some cleanup work that needs to be done there as well. But we want to constantly engage with industry stakeholders so that we can, you know, address their concerns and, you know, open up pathways for, you know, business profitability as long as we're continuing to protect consumers as a primary focus. Uh, You mentioned that the combined revenue between medical recreational has surpassed a hundred million, which puts it, you know, 1.2 billion a year pace. And I've read, you know, up to 1.5 billion uh, for recreational alone. Where is recreational at and what are the new forecasts, you know, going forward through this fiscal year? So, so we're still on pace for a billion dollars in sales. I think uh, we need about 23 million in sales a week to get to that point, And that's about what we're averaging. So this, this calendar year, uh, there's still more overall medical sales because obviously uh, adult use started pretty slowly in January, February. Uh, we have 367 million in sales in, in medical, 355 million in sales in adult use this calendar year so far. Uh, but we've we've now seen on a week by week basis that um, adult use is is outpacing medical. So I think we'll end up with about a billion in sales this year, uh, give or take. Uh, our, our economic analysis that we had done through uh, Michigan State University uh, puts the total market cap at about three billion at maturity. Uh, so I, I think we're going to get there and we might get there a little faster than we thought we were going to. And now that we see the increases in supply coming through as well, the biggest uh, holdup, I think, to, to reaching full market maturity at this point is we still have a lot of areas in the state where there's not uh, access. So as you mentioned, delivery services are expanding a bit, uh, but, but you're not going to have uh, retailers who are you know stationed in Detroit delivering to the northern lower peninsula. So as we see more participation at the municipal level across the state, then we'll start to see getting closer to that full market maturity. 
So Andrew, on that note, you know, one of the things that you guys rolled out in June was talking about the social equity program. And, and I know that's something that's really important to you. So I wanted to give an opportunity to dive into that. So for people who might not be familiar with that area of the cannabis industry, can you talk about what that means and why it's so vital? Sure. And that's, that's a dominant factor in the national conversation. We talk about the cannabis industry as well as doing it in a way that that's equitable. And we that that's uh, coming into play at, at the municipal level as well, that many municipalities are very concerned about how they address issues of social equity and, and how uh, some of those impacts of uh, the prohibition era or the war on drugs, as it's often called, can, can be remedied through this legalization process. So we as an agency had a mandate in the ballot initiative to create a program that encouraged participation in communities that were disproportionately impacted by marijuana prohibition and enforcement and to benefit those communities. So since our initial implementation, we have a team of social equity representatives that develops policy ideas and implements pieces of that program so that individuals who come from those communities, and we've identified 184 now, uh, and get discounts on their licensing fees and have access to dedicated resources and specialized services to help them get into the industry. Uh, what we found so far is, is we haven't you know, had as much success as we like in terms of taking those interested parties and getting them to the point of actually achieving licensure. Uh, in fact, we only have five licenses issued to social equity participants to this point. Uh, so there are a lot of conversations about how we can improve that program. Uh, as, as kind of an offshoot of that, I also pulled together a panel uh, that, I, that I call the Racial Equity Advisory Work Group to discuss issues specifically about racial equity within the industry. Uh, because our, our preliminary demographic information we collect from licensees shows us that even though uh, a little over 13% of the state's population is Black or African American, and about 4.5% is, is Latino or Hispanic, that when we look at ownership within the industry, um, in terms of representation of Black or African American individuals, we only have about uh, 4% and about 2% that's Hispanic or Latino. So that group is, is coming up with policy ideas as, how, as to how we can bridge that gap and try to help overcome that and move it in a direction where ownership of the cannabis industry is more representative, at least of its demographics, because we know the impacts of the war on drugs disproportionately impacted communities of color by a long shot. Uh, based on data we saw from the uh, Bureau of Prisons at the federal level, um, I believe it was that 60% uh, of the individuals in state prisons for uh, marijuana-related offenses were, were Black or Latino, and it, it was even more disparate when you looked um, at those individuals who were incarcerated at the federal level. It was almost 80 uh, percent. So obviously, there's there's some work to be done there to help to help cure that. And then, in addition, when we talk about equity, we, we also look at uh, you know, gender equity and ownership in the industry as well. Uh, those statistics I just cited for you for for uh, Racial demographics are even more skewed when we look at gender demographics, where 51% of the state's population is female, but I think the ownership level, we're only at about 10%. So that, that'll be the next uh, bite at the apple I'll take, trying to move ahead to ensure that ownership in this new burgeoning industry creates opportunities for individuals of all backgrounds in the state. What do you, what do you think? Are the, is it a lack of interest from those groups, or is it certain barriers to entry in the market, or what do you, what do you found as the reason? I, I definitely don't think it's a lack of interest. I think the when we look at barriers, especially if you're talking about people who, you know, when we look at the definition of our social equity communities, those communities had higher than average arrest rates for marijuana-related crimes over the past 10 years, and they have a higher percentage than, than average of uh, the, the residents of those municipalities living below the federal poverty limit. So if you're trying to take individuals who have been incarcerated themselves or who come from families 
where, you know, parents were incarcerated and they come from areas with a high level of poverty, you know, starting a business is, is challenging in and of itself, but starting a business in an industry where it takes a tremendous amount of startup capital and has a very strict regulatory environment is even more challenging. I mean, many of our applicants, I would say most of them are hiring attorneys just to get through the licensing process. Uh, the state's licensing process, I think, is, is somewhat complex. Uh, you also uh, typically are going to have qualification processes at the local level as well. Uh, acquiring real estate that's appropriately zoned to get into this industry is, is another barrier to entry. So there, there are a lot of, you know, you have to be quite a, a savvy business person just to get started in this industry. And if, if you're coming from a place where you grew up in poverty or you grew up in a family that was impacted directly through incarceration of family members due to the war on drugs, those are going to be very challenging things to overcome. So, you know, we need to develop new policy ideas that can help move it in that direction because I think the interest is there. And I think it's incumbent upon us to ensure that, that we have a level playing field for individuals from all those backgrounds from the beginning. Uh, because if you don't get in in the beginning, don't establish market share, uh, it, it's not going to have the impact that I think everyone hopes that it does. Um, one of the most recent things that came out of your, uh, your agency was the decision re regarding prerequisite for medical marijuana licenses. Can you explain what that, what was going on with that and your decision and what the outcome you think is going to be of that? Sure. So, so the ballot initiative initially requires most uh, licenses to be obtained only by those uh, businesses that are already licensed in the medical commercial market. But and that restriction was in place for two years, but it gave the agency the authority to lift that restriction after a year if we deemed it necessary in order to combat the illicit market, uh, provide better access in rural areas or more efficiently meet demand. So when we looked at, as I said, at one of the, one of the, uh, the issues that's kind of uh, stunting the growth of, of participation, it really is at the municipal level. And when we look at certain municipalities, we see that, that if they don't have authorizing ordinances, uh, the, and one of the barriers to getting those communities to adopt authorizing ordinances is that restriction so that they can honor social equity in the way that they wish. Those are the areas where the illicit market has the biggest impact. Um, so we, we thought that by lifting that restriction, that might compel more municipal participation. And in turn, then that would help to, to create a, a more competitive market uh, so that, that we can ensure that the, the illicit market is, is kind of tamped down by the regulated market. Can you kind of give me a scenario on that? Like what kind of community might be compelled now to open up recreational that hadn't before due to this change? I think the city of Detroit is the best example there. They've, they've been on the sidelines, even though I think you know, philosophically uh, they're supportive of having regulated access in the city. You know, they, they were, you know, they're on the medical side. They have a number of facilities in the city of Detroit, but in, in trying to honor that social equity imperative, uh, it was very challenging when all of the uh, eligibility was based on participating in the medical side. So that creates a higher barrier of entry, uh, just right out of the law itself in terms of being eligible, but also creates uh, an additional need for investment in order to get that, that, that two-step pathway in. Uh, so I think by announcing the fact that we intend to lift that restriction, I think we'll see more action in the city of Detroit as a specific example. This decision also kind of pushes people away from entering the medical market and it makes some people wonder what's the future of the medical market? Um, you talked a little bit, it's already been surpassed by recreational. Yeah, well, I, I think by virtue of, of access to a greater number of market participants, we were seeing the industry move ahead and really attack the adult use market uh, in, in favor of that versus the medical market. Uh, and just, just looking at the numbers, if you're operating a business, 
a commercial medical facility has access to a market in the state, a defined number of people at about 244,000 individuals right now. Whereas in the adult use market, you just look at citizens in the state of Michigan, you're looking at a market of, you know, uh, almost 7 million people and, and three to 4 million likely consumers. So it's just a smart business decision to, to cater your business to the adult use market. And even, even with that restriction in place in, in the, uh, in the MRTMA, um, you only have to have a license under the MMFLA. So the larger operators, it was key. They were going to keep that one anchor license to maintain eligibility, but they weren't going to keep expanding into the medical market. So uh, I think by recognizing what's happening in the industry and trying to keep policy ahead of that, we're actually uh, doing the best job we can to ensure, you know, the efficient um, uh, execution of the market itself and ensuring that we can have the best and safest possible access for consumers, both patients as well as adult use uh, consumers. Well, down the road, do medical patients have any concern that they won't be able to get the medicine they need if they're competing with the recreational market? Well, I, I think the, the, the move into the, the adult use market has really spurned uh, greater development, greater investment, and an increase in overall supply. Uh, certainly the, the transition to having adult use access created a strain on the existing supply because you have, you know, a tremendous increase in demand overnight for the regulated market, but supply doesn't increase that quickly. But like I said, we're seeing some good changes in that regard this year so far already. And I think we'll continue to see that investment and growth in the state. Uh, I think there are things we can do from a policy perspective that help to ensure the patients can continue to have access uh, and we're exploring those options. But, you know, the, the commercial medical market was inevitably going to start collapsing in on itself as businesses moved their efforts and their investments to the adult use market. Talking to people in the industry, I've heard that there still is a supply shortage out there. Maybe it's for specific products or flour, but, um, and then the, there's this decision that came, well, it was a gradual decision to kind of weed out the, or phase out the uh, caregivers. So, and, uh, I guess the question is like, why now? Uh, why not let that go longer if there's still a supply shortage? The caregiver-patient relationship remains. So caregivers can continue to uh, produce for their specifically designated patients. I think that that's always going to stay. That's, that's enshrined in the law. I don't think that's going anywhere. Uh, the ability to, to sell overages and to supply on a more commercial uh, basis uh, was a decision that we made years ago just to ensure that we didn't completely cut off the existing supply. You know, when that law was passed in 2016, the Medical Marijuana Facilities Licensing Act, there was an existing commercial market in the state. Uh, the law simply uh, honored the, the existing retail approach, but then forced us to completely reinvent the supply side, which again, as I discussed, doesn't happen overnight. So, so we did have an allowance to continue to rely on the supply being produced by, by caregivers, um, you know, beyond what they were producing for their patients. In waiting for the market to catch up and to overcome the, the supply that was being produced, we saw that there was no incentive for the increased increase investment. So it became clear that we were in a chicken or egg situation. If we waited to move ahead until the supply was there, there was no investment in creating the supply until we ensured that, that they were going to have market share. So we made the decision to, to kind of telegraph that move and phase it out over time. And I think we saw tremendous success in doing so because we saw the increase in production that was occurring in the regulated market and that gradual phase out. So I think that was, that was a wise way to approach it because it allowed it to kind of bleed through to ensure that we were maintaining access while we saw the increase in production. Uh, but, you know, continuing to allow for that was, was leading to greater concerns about, you know, 
was the production coming from caregivers? Was there the possibility that some of that distillate in particular was being filtered in from out of state and caregivers were being, you know, leveraged in order to bring that in? We saw a number of, of regulated facilities that were getting licensed and not doing any production of their own. They were just acting as kind of, you know, wholesale conduits to bring that from the unregulated market. And that was never the intention. So we needed to continue to move ahead with the regulated system as it was designed. And like I said, I think we've seen the beneficial impacts of that with the investment continuing to occur within the state and the increase in the regulated supply growing. I think the last stat I saw was back in December where it was like still about 65% caregiver product or as far as flour. And I'm just curious, do you know what it was like at the, at the point that they were totally phased out? Uh, you know, if we look at, at the, the amount of, of flour, let's just say, for example, the flour provisioning centers uh, right now is, uh, is about 13,000 pounds and 9,500 of that came from growers. Uh, so, so the vast majority of what's available in the market now is, is being produced in the regulated market. And, you know, I, I think the, the a business continuing to utilize the caregiver market was not not no longer really done out of necessity, but it was a, a cheaper pathway to procure products because those products then aren't being grown uh, to the standards that the state requires in terms of, you know, use of pesticides and testing requirements in a regulated environment. So uh, we want to make sure that we are um, providing the safest possible access for patients and adult use consumers. And that's done in environments that are controlled through these regulations. Uh, you brought up the black market there. Can you expand on how like, as people will say, you're never getting rid of the black market. So what are your, what, what's your goal with the black market? What do you want to do it to, to make it decline, I guess? Our, our focus, again, is, is on the safety of the products. So the, if the safest possible access point for consumers is through the regulated market, we need to make that uh, the, the predominant mean, uh, means of access. So that, that's done through a couple of ways. Uh, creating a business-friendly regulatory environment encourages participation. It encourages you know, growth in the market and an increase in supply. Ultimately, that increase in supply and competition leads to lower prices, uh, which then you know, draws more people into that market. You know, we've already tried to make decisions that allow for consumers to get access through the regulated market in the ways they were used to getting access to the unregulated market, you know, through delivery services, curbside pickup, things like that. You know, the variety of products needs to be there as well. Uh, so that, that's a lot of it. And then we continue to work with law enforcement partners, particularly through the state police marijuana tobacco investigation section to look at unregulated operations and ensure that, um, you know, action is taken against those. Uh, there, there continue to be operations throughout the state. And this isn't, you know, uh, dealing on the corner. This is, you know, brick and mortar commercial businesses operating in the light of day. And we need to make sure that can, can continue to occur where, uh, you know, there's a regulated environment and there are, laws and rules that need to be adhered to that ultimately are in pursuit of, uh, you know, safe access for consumers. So we're going to continue to approach that, um, ensure that that operations are abiding by the law. So there's, there's a level playing field and ultimately the consumers are the winners. In so Andrew, we've been navigating through a global pandemic. And as you've just spoken for the last 20 minutes, this is a fast moving, exploding segment of commerce in the state of Michigan. How are you and your team doing? Like, this feels like this would be hard enough to do if you were actually in an office together through all of this. How has this been for you guys to kind of navigate through this? Well, it feels like, as I'm sure it does for everyone, that we've lived about 10 years in the last 10 months. <laughs> right. Uh, it, it seems like it's been a long time. But, uh, you know, I, the way I applauded the industry for being flexible and adaptable, I, I have to applaud the team at the MRA as well. Our staff have been remarkable in terms of making that transition to home 
uh, we were pretty forward thinking in terms of our uh, planning. It certainly wasn't planning directly for COVID, but our sort of disaster recovery and business continuity plans were executed and we were prepared to, for whatever reason, send staff to work remotely. Uh, and they've done a tremendous job in doing that. And, and, and I think we'll continue to pursue options like that at a, at a staff level because we've seen that productivity. A lot of, a lot of what we do was already electronic, right? We, we, most of the application processing we do now is, is digital. Uh, it comes through online applications. If it comes on paper, the first step in our process is to digitize it so it can be managed uh, through computer systems. So that work can be done remotely. Um, I think the, the biggest challenge has been, you know, the relationships that we built licensees in the field through our regulation officers and agents getting out there and, and working with them and meeting them face-to-face -face has been stymied a bit. But we're starting to get back to that now because it's just, as I said, the industry people we work with really want to run compliant operations and we can be an educational resource to ensure that they can do that. I think that's more easily done when we're there in person, when we see the facilities and we can give them guidance and help as to how to, how to ensure that they're abiding by the rules. So we're going to get back to that. And I think that'll be helpful to get to work and work with them in person again. Um, you know, from, from my perspective, personally, uh, these types of, of Zoom meetings and so forth are great, but I like getting out and meeting people face-to-face -face as well. Much easier to tell when I'm doing speeches if my jokes are landing, if I can see the person, I don't have to try and engage it via, you know, some, some digital platform. Um, but, you know, this is, this is the new world, right? And I think we need to be able to leverage technology and be adaptable. So I think we've done a really good job at doing that. And, what is normal now? You know, I'm not sure we'll get back to normal. So for example, one beneficial output of, of this <clears throat> working in a pandemic has been our ability to do virtual inspections. And so we'll likely move ahead with doing some hybrid approach to doing some things in person, but doing some things virtually as well. That gives us more flexibility when you're talking about canvassing a state the size of Michigan. Um, it gives us an opportunity to, to have a presence in facilities virtually uh, so that we can increase our capacity without having to increase the number of staff. Andrew Brisbo from the MRA, my friend, thank you so much for the time and we will see you on October 27th. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And there they go. Big thanks to Gus Burns for helping me with that episode and for Andrew Brisbo for joining us. Do not forget our cannabis event is October 27th at 2 p.m. So if you want to know where the industry is going here in the state of Michigan, we have the event for you. You can sign up at mlivemediagroup.com backslash cannabis, and we will see you on October 27th.